and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I actually have one of my Morehouse brothers. I've known this dude now for 21 years. It's been a very, very long time, and we have grown and matured, uh, and our paths are quite similar, to say the least. What's going on, Lee Mary? How you feeling, man? Brother Bakari, it has been almost over two decades now. We're getting old, I think. Well, you getting old. I'm trying to stay as young as I can. Tell me this, man. I know you're running for the attorney general of the great state, damn near Republic of Texas. How uh, how does it feel? What's going on? And it feels good. I I know a lot of people outside of the state of Texas doesn't realize how diverse and how wide open the state of Texas is for change. And I've, I've been working here, as you know, for years, and I've seen you fly in and then fly out and speak with families and uh, continue to help organize this community. I'm really excited about uh, the, the work we can get down here. Man, I agree with that. So uh, every every episode, one of the unique things about my show is we we have our listeners have the opportunity to hear the arc of our uh, guest career. And I want to ask you that similar question. Uh, why did you get into the type of civil work, civil rights work that you do? What keeps you in this work? Uh, and I know that this can be physically and emotionally and psychologically taxing. Explain us up to us about the arc of your career getting to where you are today. You know, I used to be a school teacher. Uh, what I did right out of undergrad was join Teach for America. And I went, I went to go teach. Uh, I wanted to go teach back home in Los Angeles. That's where I'm from. And I wanted to, you know, go back to my hood and, and pour into the community that had that made me. And they told me it was full. Right. The Teach for America Corps there was full. They had to go somewhere else. And so I said, send me somewhere like South Central. And they sent me to Camden, New Jersey uh, at the time, which was the poorest city in America, the most dangerous city in America. And um, so I, I had never been to New Jersey before, but I decided to give it a try and loved it. Absolutely loved Camden, um, loved working with the kids. Uh, what we were doing back then was pro- would probably be called CRT. I was teaching early American history. And there was no section in the curriculum about Native American or indigenous history. So we rewrote it and we, we you know, um, got the Board of Education to agree with us that we should probably update the curriculum. And then after two years of teaching, I got kicked out of Camden, which was cool. I got to go back to Atlanta <laughs> and um, started, a, started the School for Law and Social Justice out there. It helps uh, co-found the School of Law, Law and Social Justice out there. and. Um, was working with Atlantans, and Bakari, you're familiar with Atlanta. Uh, you know that over the past maybe 10, 15 years, they've gone through a rapid redevelopment where they were tearing down all the historical housing projects there. Um, and, you know, a lot of our friends are involved in leadership there uh, from Morehouse and from, from the Atlanta area. And from the classroom perspective, the rapid destruction of the projects was, was causing huge displacements of uh, students and families. And so I organized with those students back then. I remember Party Like a Rockstar was out and the Chop Boys uh, was from one of the housing projects. They came out. Al Sharpton came out. Jesse Jackson came out and they caused uh, called a moratorium on the destruction of the projects. Um, and then the media left and the celebrities left and they flipped the switch and they, they shut down all those projects and displaced hundreds of thousands of families, really. And I felt like I kind of lied to my students. I felt like I let them down. I taught them that organizing and protesting, they, they, they could be powerful uh, and they were powerful temporarily. Uh, but I wanted to go back to law school and learn about their housing rights and how to uh, get some better tools to advocate uh, for, for my students with. 
And so I went back to law school and I asked myself the sort of the same question, you know, as much as I want to go back to Atlanta and continue to organize, I said, where was I most needed? Um, and it was in the Fifth Circuit Courts. Um, the Fifth Circuit Court of, of Appeals uh, or the Fifth Circuit in general is one of the more notorious um, districts concerning civil rights violations. Uh, they narrowly interpret the law uh, in have widely ex expanded things like qualified immunity uh, and other judicially created uh, remedies uh, for um, uh, police misconduct. And so I, I pitched my tent there, uh, representing families in, in, in North Texas and Dallas. And, um, and it was during a time, I think, where the nation began to turn its attention to those kind of cases. And uh, I, if that explains the arc of my career, I think that was it. So I think there are a lot of misconceptions about lawyers like you and, and Ben and myself and Harry Daniels and Chris Stewart. Uh, they think somehow that we're, we, we do these cases because we're chasing ambulances. But in reality, families are constantly reaching out to us re respectively across the country. Can you explain to listeners how these police abuse cases and misconduct cases end up on your desk? And talk about what goes into the work of representing these families, not only in terms of legal counsel, I mean, I'm working with the Langley family right now. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a case in South Carolina. We're getting counseling and therapy for these families. And that, that ain't what you go to law school for, right? But it's, it's a part of the job. So talk, talk about, the, and the public relationship, public relations side. Talk about all of these things. Well, the, the, the idea, we'll start with the, the kind of the ambulance ch chaser mantra. We live in the deadliest police culture in the modern world. Uh, on average, law enforcement officers kill about three people a day. And that's that's just people they shoot to death. Um, the other forms of brutality um, double and triple those numbers, right? And so I since I pitched my tent, I constantly began receiving phone calls about these tragedies. Now we hear about the Ahmaud Arbery's and the Botham Shahs and the George Floyds, uh, but there is an Ahmaud Arbery in almost every city, um, cases that have gone on un unprosecuted and no one's paid attention to. And unfortunately, you know, the harvest in that regard is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so when people like you set up a tent and tell people that you're willing to take on those cases, I imagine your phone never stops ringing uh, because, because, you know, it's not a matter of, uh, um, of looking for work. To, you know, these kind of incidents, incidents take place every day. And what's, I guess, more tragic is that the law is not in the favor of the people or the citizens. Uh, there are huge hurdles in municipal, uh, municipal immunities to jump in order to be able to recover for the families, in order to be able to do justice for the family, in order to get access to the evidence, uh, which is probably- if you, you ever, if, you, if you ever do without filing a lawsuit, right? Right, right. And so um, if you're gonna do this work, you have to understand, well, number one, you probably need to find another way to make money. Because there's not a huge amount, there's not a, a pot of gold at the end of most of these cases. Um, you know, there's an there's an occasional case if you have all the right elements in place uh, that may may have uh, a a uh, a resolution uh, in in the civil courts. But generally, most of your cases, it's going to be uh, a long fight. We're talking years and years and years um, with you pouring resources into the case, and then you're hoping that the family survives it. Right. Because anytime you're dealing with a tragedy, you're dealing with a splintered family. Um, I'm here in Texas now and I was just meeting with the sister of a Tatiana Jefferson. 
that that was a, a, a young family from Fort Worth uh, who had overcome some things, right? They, they were raised in the streets, uh, but all of uh, Tatiana and her sisters, they went to college. One of them is in the military. Um, young professionals making their way, taking care of each other's children. And she was watching her nephew one day playing video games when a police officer got a call about her door being left open and crept around the back of her home. Uh, saw her standing near the window and shot her through her bedroom window. Um, her mom died shortly after that uh, of, of a broken heart, really. Uh, her father died shortly after that. Her sister just had a massive heart attack. Uh, there are there are ripple effects of these kind of tragedies on communities and on families. And and as the attorney, as the counselor, it's kind of your responsibility to try to hold, help hold them together because you know what, what they're going to be going through after years and years of doing this kind of thing. So um, I, re I really wish that there there was more resources in our field and people were people properly understood it because I think if they if we all appreciated the extent of the problem, uh, then we would at least begin to be open to some real long-term solutions. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. We see police and families when things go wrong, but people may not realize how much time we spend on police reform policy. I know you spend a ton of behind the scenes um, time on this because I think I speak for you when I say that we all wished that there was some real oversight and guardrails and consequence for police through public policy such that we wouldn't have to fight in court like we do. Talk to me about what a police reform agenda looks like, and particularly because you're running for office, I guess we'll start there. Or for you, is a world without police the optimal end game? I, I think that, well, the, the short answer to the question is a world without police, no, it's not the optimal end game. That's a, that's a, that's a great answer, running for, particularly running for office. That's a great <laughs> um, I think that... We can take a snapshot of what the nation looked like 50 years ago. And it's not idea, but understanding that 50 years ago, you know, the law enforcement in the United States looked extremely different. Um, there were 100,000 prisoners in all of the country 50 years ago. Uh, and then we hit a switch and we said that we were going to start to deal with mental health crisis and addiction and poverty in a way that criminalized uh, those circumstances. Uh, we called it a war on drugs that really 
turned out to be a war on black and brown communities. And we saw a spike in the prison population. We didn't see a spike in crime. We didn't see a spike in population, but we saw a sudden spike in the prison population from 100,000 prisoners to 2.2 million today, 7.6 million under some form of state supervision. Um, and we saw, of course, the, the incidents of uh, use of force or misuse of force skyrocket during that period. I think we can begin to scale back some of the policies that led us from 100,000 50 years ago to 2.2 million today. There are 125,000 prisoners in Texas alone now. Uh, and it's because we decided to treat drug addiction as a crime. It's not a crime. It's, it's a mental health concern. It, uh, it's If you talk to the doctors and you talk to the experts, it's something that will not be treated better if you, if you incarcerate people. Um, and so as I look at policy, but the first thing, and I appreciate now that people are starting to acknowledge the mental health crisis in the state of Texas. We saw Governor Greg Abbott, a conservative, say, we are in the midst of a mental health crisis uh, and we need to deal with it uh, somehow. Uh, we have a model uh, um, of how to deal with it and how we've seen the opioid crisis addressed in suburban communities. Um, I think we should begin to follow some of those models. I would love to see mental health departments develop throughout the state of Texas and throughout the country. There's some, some great models in like Oregon. Oh, they have the Oregon Star program where it's, when you call 911 and you tell someone they're in a mental health crisis, they will transfer you to their mental health department. They will send out a mobile mental health unit um, and people will receive treatment as opposed to uh, criminalization. Uh, a lot of the judges that I work with uh, from Dallas County to Bexar County, Travis County, all over the state of Texas, they're diverting people away from the criminal uh, uh, courts to diversion courts, to drug treatment programs. Um, but a, a simple way from drug treatment to mental health uh, to mental health resources, we can begin to tackle the, the problem with mass incarceration and the so-called war on drugs in, in a way that actually empathizes with the community and causes healing. So as we dig down deeper, and your brilliance around the issue of criminal justice reform is amazing. You're running for attorney general, the chief legal officer of the state. Um, and between y'all, Lieutenant Governor and, and Attorney General now, I mean, y'all got one as a, as a criminal and the other one is just crazy, but right. that's, I can't judge Texas. I'm from South Carolina. But <laughs> at, when people ask you this, let, let's, let's go through a few questions about this run. Why are you running for Attorney General? Why not the mayor or judge or Congress or state legislature? Um, the truth is, it's the past two years, the Attorney General's office has really got it on my radar. I've been looking for better ways to advocate for the families that I represent and where prosecutors fail, uh, where going to the police chiefs fail, where, um, you know, looking for help from the Department of Justice is often not there because they're so overcrowded. Uh, the attorney general is the people's lawyer for every state. They're responsible for enforcing the Constitution. And so when George Floyd was killed, um, the first person I went to was Keith Ellison. And um, with Ben, with, uh, ben and I, and uh, we said we have a, a brother that we know, Keith Ellison, who's a, you know, a progressive leader um, who probably would want to do something about it. Now, in Minnesota, like in most states, the, the attorney general can't volunteer to show up somewhere. Uh, the, they have to be asked for help at the county level. And so we spoke to the governor and said, hey, we have somebody who will be willing to deal with this big national incident. Uh, you, um, that is empowered to do so under your constitution. Um, he just needs to be invited and Hennepin County invited him. 
Um, when Breonna Taylor was killed, I, I'm, I'm not uh, a part of the legal team in that case, but I was helping with organizers on the ground, like our friend Tamika Mallory. And, um, you know, we wanted to see the attorney general there do the right thing. Uh, Daniel Cameron, of course, he didn't. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, you know, it was, again, whether or not that family was going to get justice was turning on this office. It's not highly publicized. It's not it's not one of the offices people naturally think of. Um, and down down in Georgia, where when the men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery were not arrested, uh, people, the person that we were responsible was responsible for reporting that failure to was Chris Carr, the Georgia Attorney General, uh, and he he was empowered and in, in, and he took the steps necessary to indict the prosecutors who failed to uphold their duty of office. Uh, Bakari, that's something we never see where prosecutors themselves are criminally indicted on felony charges for. Uh, failing to uphold their duty of office. And since then, it's it's sort of been like in and about. I've been working with uh, the Illinois Attorney General to deal with some deplorable uh, situations in their prisons there. Kwame Raul, I've been working with Rob Botton in California, a progressive prosecutor. Uh, Leticia James is just a star in her own right. I've never had a chance to work with her, but uh, I'm just impressed by her work. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, and um, Aaron Ford down in Nevada. And then I went back home after traveling the country and fighting for people and advocating for people. And I found Ken Paxton, an indicted felon <laughs> as the Texas attorney general. Um, and I started looking for people who could run against him. Right. And we, some people in the mix, but they were not progressives. They were not people who were adamant about reform. Um, and so I, I still didn't decide to run myself. I said, we're going to find somebody. You know, I work with the Grassroots Law Project, me and Shatan King. And so we looked for progressive prosecutors around the country, and we knew that there was some, there was some talent out there. Uh, but around March of last year, uh, a young man named Marvin Scott III, a 26-year-old AT&T uh, labor um, worker, uh, had, was suffering a mental health crisis about two miles from where I live. And uh, he was taken into custody and essentially suffocated to death uh, while in custody during a mental health crisis. And it broke my heart. It was another family. But what I discovered was I had had a drink with this guy before. He, he hung out at the same bar that I hung out oh, wow, at. Yeah. And um, it just struck too close to home. And I, and I reached out to Ken Paxton, who was familiar with me at least at that point. And I said, you know, of course, I wanted all the video evidence of what happened to my client. And I expected his office to get involved, of course. I mean, it's, it's a weird expectation because we know that Ken Baxter was not going to get involved and do justice for his family. And so I said he would he would do his job in this case or I would take his job from him. Um, it probably was like an angry uh, threat. But when he failed to do it, I decided to, to try to live, live up to uh, my end of the bargain. What's your agenda if you're elected? What are the, give me your, your top three, four agenda items. So I mentioned earlier that I'm an educator and protecting our public schools in Texas is, is rounding out near the top of the agenda. There is a unique assault on our public schools uh, from the whole CRT propaganda that, that is attacking school boards and um, trying to dramatically uh, whitewash the curriculum in Texas uh, to the multiple lawsuits being filed against our school districts by Ken Paxton uh, concerning whether or not leaders in school buildings should be able to make decisions um, requiring masks. I'm glad to see the Department of Justice and now the United States Supreme Court is coming down on the side of local uh, control of, over those decisions. Uh, but I think that there needs to be a hedge of protection uh, around our public schools. 
brought by the Attorney General's office. I would like to pursue unique lit, uh, litigation designed to ensure fair funding of our schools. That's an ongoing fight that you know goes all the way back to Brown v. Board of Education. We still don't we still don't have equal schools. Our, our schools are still very separate and unequal in the state of Texas and really around the country. Uh, and so we still need to be fighting to enforce provisions of Brown v. Board. Uh, and, and I think one of the key ways that we do that is in funding. So I'm looking forward to doing that as, as the next attorney general, responding to the mental health crisis uh, in a way that serves all the people of Texas, uh, starting mental health departments and uh, in, in working with local leadership to develop mental health resources within our communities is desperately needed uh, to respond to the mental health crisis. Uh, we can't get any of that done. This is the last thing I'll say in terms of platform, uh, but we can't get any of that done until we empower voters who are being stripped of their power in, in Texas from uh, racial gerrymandering to the voter suppression um, laws that have been passed uh, throughout the state of Texas. Uh, I think it's on the AG's office and it will certainly, certainly be a priority of my office to protect voting rights, uh, to expand voter access in Texas. Texas is the most difficult state in the country to vote in. Mm. Um, that says a um, lot coming from the South too. That says a whole lot. Yeah. And so, um, and so the, those round out, round out our priorities. What I love about the office really is that there's no aspect of Texas life from property taxes to child support to legalization of cannabis. There is no aspect of Texas life that's not impacted by the attorney general's office. And it's an office that Democrats uh, came within 3.6% of the vote uh, of winning last, uh, well, last let election. Me ask you, let me ask you that question, because as much as I'm on board with you, and sure, there's a, there's a listener somewhere that says, I like this guy, but he's a progressive running in Texas, and Texas is a state won by Donald Trump, and you got beat by 3.6 points last go around. What's the game plan for closing that gap? So only about 20% of the black population voted. I'm sorry, only about 20% of the uh, registered uh, uh, popula uh, population. I was about to say, what well, that means... <laughs> that's that's deplorable yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. People who could have voted if they simply were inclined to it's not people who were not eligible to vote or hadn't registered in time 80 percent of the voters stayed home if we increase that margin by 12 percent that 3.6 percent gap is obliterated uh if we if we encourage young voters in texas uh to come out and vote and and mind you they are right in the last election cycle voters under 30 increased their participation in texas elections in the last presidential election by 400 percent it's the fastest growing voter block in the state of texas by the numbers there is no reason that we can't win this office and quite frankly every other office if the people had a reason to come out to vote and so and one of the reasons I, I put my my name in the in the uh, hat was because People were, were using the, the cases that I work on and the platform that I've built to encourage people to come out and vote in other elections. And I said, well, what if we offer the, the voters someone that they knew, someone that they know has fought for them, uh, someone who, in, the, in, the, in many people's opinion, win when I shouldn't win, right? And, and, and when you look at cases like Amber Geiger, no, no white woman has been successfully prosecuted for the murder of a black man in, in the history of the state of Texas. No, no uh, white police officer, I should say. 
Let me ask uh, you, let me, let me piggyback on that because I just have two more questions, but you're merging into my, my second to last. How much does what's happening or not happening with Democrats in Washington affect the enthusiasm for a race like yours? And how do you navigate that? It is ext- the failures in Washington, the failures to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, the failure, failure to pass any measurable uh, uh, litigation that could that isn't will respond to the crisis that brought so many people out in 2020 uh, has really put a damper on the level of enthusiasm of people wanting to be involved in the political process. Uh, similar to when I, I was telling you, you know, I felt like I lied to my students when I told them if they protest and they organize, they could win and they could stop them from tearing down their projects. Uh, I, I'm, I feel a similar responsibility to the people who are a part of my platform, who believe in change, who stood stood up and protested all over the country. And they got a White House that doesn't seem prepared to fight tooth and nail, at least, to go all in for the, for the outcomes that they want. And, you know, they, uh, Rev. Al Sharpton and I were talking about this on his show yesterday. And we're now we saw the, the, the bloodiest police year on record in almost 20 years. This year, this past year. Um, and so, you know, is it, it has all the protests been for naught is what a lot of people are asking. And, and instead of telling them to believe in, you know, a moderate uh, uh, Democrat uh, for, for the AG, that they'll bring the change that we want. I, 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 I'm hoping that my direct involvement and the direct involvement of real progressives uh, will will inspire people to not lose hope and to keep up the fight. As my daughter's having a fit now, that means that it, our, our time is coming to an end. But how can people support your campaign and how can people follow you? You go to Lee Merritt, the number four, Texas.com. Lee Merritt, the number four, Texas.com. You can phone bank if you're not in the state of Texas. You can phone bank if you're in the state of Texas. You can um, canvas, you can door knock, you can donate. Um, all of those things help. We, we need all hands on deck in the state of Texas. My brother, we got early voting going on right now. You know, I love you. Dating back to our days at Morehouse College together. I'm very proud of you. Win, lose, or draw, which I believe you're actually going to win this primary. And then when you win the primary, you know. The whole it, it, Hey, the, the, the floodgates open up. Stacy or Lee Merritt becomes a household name. Uh, my brother, I love you, man. Anything we can do for you here at the show, let us know. Shout out to your team. Uh, your team, any you can tell how good a candidate is by how good his comms team is and the fact that he has individuals from families that he's represented, both of them, John's sister, helping him out. That means that you've done right by them. So shout out and thank you for everything that you, brother. Thank you, brother. It's right. always a pleasure. I look forward to connecting. Man, go out and get some votes, man. I'll holler at you later. Later, bro.